0: With your host, Andrew Donaldson, this is Herd Tell.
1: You know, you might have heard tell there's still quite a bit of discussion about the last election in 2020, even though we're already starting to have elections for 2021. How, why is that? Well, it seems like the election cycles are never ending now, especially on the national level, where you're either getting ready for run for president, just ran for president, or you're president. Seems like to have been the only three modes for a lot of ambitious politicians these days. In the meantime, we got to keep having elections, off-year elections, midterms next year, another off-year election, and then another national presidential election. All the way from the president through the senators, the Congress, right down to your local school boards and dog catchers if that's an elected office where you're from. We have to keep having elections because we're in a representative democracy system of government. But that's the problem. Those things don't just magically happen. And that's why I want to talk to our friend Guinea Coulter today. A lot of the discussion on conspiracy theories and stolen elections and all this other stuff, I wonder how much people actually understand how an election works. Not how they think it works, how it actually works. That's why we want to talk to Guinea, because not only is she a pundit who's written in places like the Washington Post, Elections Daily, other places, she's a poll worker first and foremost. This is what she does. You're going to be able to hear the passion in her voice. She feels like this is how she contributes and makes America a better place. And she's representative to hundreds of thousands of people who volunteer their time. They do get a small stipend, but they aren't professionals. They do this to help their communities, to help us all. And I wonder if we understand the processes a little better. Maybe folks won't get so suckered into every little conspiracy theory when they see a tough box get slid under a table in a five-second fuzzy video clip. Of course, there are problems in elections, and there are bad faith actors out there. But what we need is not more hyperbole or people guessing at it or people making assumptions out of ignorance. Let's talk to somebody who actually knows how all this stuff works. What's the difference between a recall and an audit, a forensic audit, that there's different kinds of audits? How it's important of who does those audits and who does the recounts? And most importantly, who's taking care of your vote when you take your sheet or touch screen? And go to your polling place to make sure what you put in there winds up on a TV screen later along with millions of other Americans to decide some of the most important things in our country like initiatives and who our elected leaders are. It's like Ginya wrote before when she wrote in Ordinary Times right before the 2018 midterms, which you'll hear in our interview with her, that was one of the hardest elections for her to ever do, even harder than what 2020 was. And she wrote, repeat after me, folks, there are no magical ballot fairies. Sadly, magical ballot fairies that wave a magic wand and poof, your ballot is perfectly designed, laid out, printed straight with the proper readable ink, with the correct candidates in the correct order with instructions on how to vote on your ballot, in clear, easy-to-understand language, do not exist. The magical ballot fairies will not personally fly your ballot to you, glittering wings aflutter. End quote. Magical ballot fairies are not real But our elections are very real And these are real people behind them that have to do real work That we should have a little bit better understanding of So let's talk to Guinea Coulter Find out the real scoop on what happens in elections Not what social media says happens in elections So that we can understand this most basic element of a representative democracy So whatever you've heard tell about elections Now we're going to get some answers from our friend Guinea Coulter Right after this So Magical Ballot Fairies may not be real, but Guinea Coulter sure is. She's a very good friend of ours. She's an elections expert, and we are thrilled to death that she's going to give us a little bit of time for how elections in the real world, not in the Twitter world, work. How you doing, Guinea?
0: I'm doing just fine.
1: Uh, I so appreciate you taking this time. One of the reasons I really wanted to talk to you about all the election news is you're not just a pundit, even though you've written in Washington Post and Elections Daily and these other places. This is what you actually do. You're a poll worker first and foremost. You want to facilitate these elections. So let let folks know your background a little bit. The fact that you actually go in, you prepare for these things. Tell people a little bit about what you do to get ready for an election and on election day.
0: All right. So I'm about as close to a professional poll worker as it gets. I've overseen 22 separate elections over the course of five years. So I get called pretty frequently. And what I do, I'm generally branch manager or precinct clerk, meaning the buck stops with me. If anything happens or goes wrong, it's my fault. So I'm responsible for overseeing my team, making sure that the equipment's working, making sure that the right number of ballots have been delivered to us and that they are being issued appropriately and there's nothing missing at the end of the night. And I also do the accounting and I participate in the post-election audit afterwards.
1: Okay, so when you're talking about your team, though, and you're talking about you being as close to professional as possible, I don't know, make sure people understand, almost all these poll workers are volunteers in one same or another, right?
0: For the most part, although we do get paid, because very few people would be poll workers if we didn't get at least something.
1: Right, but they're not, this isn't what they do all the time. They come in, they get trained for it, they do it for the election. Hopefully you get the same people to come back and do it again, but... There's a lot of revolving door to who actually works in these elections, isn't there?
0: In a lot of areas, yes. Now, one of the things that's nice about being in Central Florida is we don't have a lot of turnover. I mean, COVID obviously was kind of a game changer there and not in a good way. But for the most part, everybody came back for the elections this year. And we've had a consistent and we generally have a consistent team for anybody who works the municipal elections.
1: Right. And I'm old enough to remember this in 2020, even with all the mess that was going on. Everybody went, oh, Florida got it right. Florida did great. Florida got their results in. I'm old enough to remember the 2000 election. That was the first presidential election. I got to vote in. Hanging chads, all that stuff. It wasn't that long ago that Florida was the opposite end of that and was kind of like oh, they're the state that doesn't have it together. What What is it that you've seen on the ground that makes Florida kind of the model now of how states do their elections?
0: I think Florida is capable of learning from their mistakes. And one of the things that I think it's worth um, noting is that for the most part, Florida counties handled the election in 2000 just fine. There were a couple of counties that had serious problems, and those counties were high enough in population to... Have a spillover effect on all the other counties in the state, you know there's 67 counties and Florida is still having to answer for the actions of two in particular. I'm not sure that's exactly fair, but I do think that overall Florida has an excellent crop of supervisors of elections, Um, They they are our main election official in the states and they oversee all the election operations in their respective counties and recently we've been blessed with a fantastic group.
1: Now, are those elected, are those elected officials? Or are they appointed officials in the state of Florida? Are those people it's, that have ran for office com- or what?
0: It's a combination. Um, there's some who are elected. There are some who are appointed. One of the things about being a supervisor of elections is that you serve at the pleasure of the governor, and so the governor can appoint you. The governor can remove you if he doesn't think you're doing their jo- your job. But if you do just fine, then you don't usually have to worry about re-election too many times.
1: So we're getting kind of educated people that haven't paid attention to these elections because we see what went on in Georgia, uh what's going on right now in Arizona and they're starting to learn that there's this whole election chain of command for lack of a better term that a lot of people may not realize existed between um a secretary of state or a governor and all the way down to the polling places. Um just real quickly explain to folks from a precinct captain or their local school or church or wherever they go to vote, how many layers are there going up before you get to those named individuals where you have like a secretary of state or an election board person?
0: All right. Well, the food chain. So we start with our, the, you know, most basic level poll worker with probably the least amount of permissions. And then we go up to precinct clerk, which has at the precinct level, the highest level of permissions. Then going into the election office. You have obviously the people who work in the office and then you either have your supervisor of elections, your city clerk or town clerk, your board of elections. A lot of states have boards instead of just one individual and they make most of the decisions at the county or municipal level. Going up, usually you go to the secretary of state, lieutenant governor or the governor. There are a couple of states where the secretary of state doesn't have all that much power. But in most states, the Secretary of State is who oversees most of the election issues statewide. Sometimes the governor has the power to do that, but for the most part, the Secretary of State.
1: So you were there. You were pretty, In your opinion, at least what you saw in Florida, 2020, we know what the media says. We know what social media says. How bad was it? We know the COVID stuff threw everything for a loop, but was there more problems than usual? Was there less problems was usual on the ground that you were actually there to see it and you know as much about this as anybody? What was it like from your point of view?
0: On the ground, it was interesting because we had so many poll workers who were genuinely concerned about contracting COVID because they were in a higher risk group. And so we had to replace quite a few poll workers. And I think that everybody, especially in Florida, was thinking to ourselves, "Oh God, everybody in the United States and probably the world is waiting for us to mess up," and they took that very seriously. They upped a lot of their cyber, they upped a lot of their cybersecurity requirements. They started be getting serious about who was allowed in the election offices at what times. Um, I mean, I had to show my ID every time I walked down a hallway, and I was actually training poll workers by then.
1: Oh.
0: I mean, it was really, we all had to wear badgers that showed we were who we said we were with photo identification. So I think it was definitely, um, we tried not to leave anything to chance in Florida that year.
1: And how far ahead of time did they start all this with, I know the COVID probably threw your normal election cycle off a little bit. How far ahead of time did they start really cranking down on this of we're going to have to do some extra stuff here?
0: We started getting worried around February because by March, I mean, our primary occurred I think three days after everything went into lockdown. Wow. wow, And we did have a significant uptick in people who chose to vote by mail, which was actually nice because, you know, no waiting at polling places. The primaries were kind of dead. I mean, things didn't really pick up as far as voter traffic until the general, because people at that point, for some reason, didn't trust vote by mail. I'm not quite sure why.
1: Well, uh, a lot of it was rumor and innuendo, I, I assume, in the way it was covered. but. Let me just ask you then. You're you're an election expert. Is there legitimate concerns with vo- vote by mail, or is it something that we should utilize more to take some of that pressure off of poll workers and uh, primary events where you're kind of scrambling to maybe get staff some of the times?
0: I think vote by mail is wonderful. I've had the privilege of visiting Colorado, which is an almost entirely vote by mail state, and you know what? They have their they have their you know what together. I mean they really do a great job as far as maintaining the security of the ballots and then after tabulation they do what's called a risk limiting audit which I've also witnessed statewide and it's something to behold. And I think a state's vote by mail program is only as good as the people behind it and the amount of people and funding that they put towards their programs. You know if you if you half ass it obviously vote by mail is going to have problems. If you really take it seriously, you have far fewer problems, especially when it comes to things like ballots being mailed out on time, signature verification, getting your local legislators on board with vote by mail. We can't underestimate that power.
1: Now, you use the A word, and the A word has been all over the news with uh, the election stuff lately that we've been seeing out of Arizona, and they're threatening to do in Georgia now. What give me the nomenclature and kind of walk me through it slowly. What is an actual audit because that's not the same as people are maybe familiar with a recount, but an audit's a totally different thing. Can you explain to us what an audit is and and or at least what it's supposed to be?
0: Okay, so a recount is done to make sure that the results actually match up with what you're supposed to have. An audit is done. Now there's different types of audits. There's process audits, which is to make sure everybody was following proper procedure when they needed to follow it, and chain of custody was never broken. Then obviously there are risk limiting audits. Risk limiting audits were invented by uh, Dr. um, Dr. Philip Stark at UC Berkeley, and what risk limiting audits do is they let you know that within a certain percentage, your results were correct without having to go to a full hand count, recount, which costs a lot of time and required money and of course personnel. And then there are security audits, which you're basically looking at your technology and making sure that there weren't any things like, you know, tro- like backdoors, Trojan horses, logic bombs, etc., in the equipment.
1: Now you talk about the equipment. A couple things about the equipment is the equipment online as we understand it with like a laptop or a cell phone or something where somebody could just go into it online or hack it for lack of a better term is that a reasonable fear for people or is it just the data after the fact that's stored because there there seems to be a lot of uh folks that seem to believe that they're just going to hack straight into a machine and change a vote and there really hasn't been a lot of that that we've actually seen in the real world correct
0: that's correct i think with um i i always when people talk about this i always ask them can you define a voting machine?
1: Well, please do. What is a voting machine as far as you're concerned?
0: It depends on where you are. I mean, most people, I think, are referring to what are referred to as um, electrome- electromechanical voting machines or, the you know, the old school touchscreen ones. Right. Or like a lever voting machine. There's also ballot marking devices, which you press your results on a touchscreen and it prints out a paper ballot with a barcode or a QR code that contains the information for the votes. Now, those can be a problem because you're not sure when you're doing, if you have to do a recount, what is the ballot scanner or tabulator, which is what ballots go into to ascertain your results. What are they counting? Are they counting the character, rec- the optical character recognition, a.k.a. the letters, or are they recognizing what got encoded in the barcode or the QR code? So that, I think, causes a lot of confusion for people. And I mean, I don't blame them. It's, I mean, elections are weird and complicated on a good day.
1: And with every state doing them just a little bit different, that just complicates some more because now you got 50 variations on top of it.
0: Mm -hmm. I mean, people keep telling me about the evils of the voting machines in Florida. And what cracks me up is Florida hasn't used electromechanical voting machines in quite some time. I think 2008 was when they stopped. And Florida's been a mostly paper ballot state for a very long time. We do have ballot marking devices for voters who may have some form of disability or who may need translation help but they're not all, all that common in Florida. We keep one because um, obviously under the Americans with Disabilities Act, we have to have that option for voters. But even most people I'm, I've processed who have disabilities would prefer to fill in the ballot themselves or bring in somebody who can help them with that.
1: Yeah. Now, paper ballots bring up another type of what people probably call a voting machine that's not actually a voting machine. I know where my polling place, where I poll, you do the paper ballot, and then you put it in the, for lack of a better term, the scanner, and it it self-feeds into the machine and scans it. I think a lot of people also kind of consider that a voting machine, but it's really a tabulation machine, correct? Yes, it's
0: really just a tabulator. Um, Some take digital images of the ballots, which can be reviewed later. Others don't. Um, The older the scanner, the less likely it does that. And I think a lot of people have problems with the fact that some ballot scanners have cellular or modem-based transmission. And that's obviously, it is a cybersecurity risk. However, one of the things that happened in Florida is our ballot scanners do happen to have wireless transmission. I think it adds an extra layer of security because you have your results printed out and that means the results are saved to a jump drive. And you can compare the results on the jump drive to what the results were printed out on that on that uh, slip of paper, and you can figure out, hey, what if you know something isn't right here, or oh, things match up. We can proceed to our to our audits when we're looking at all the the precinct paperwork at the at the, on the next day.
1: Is there when when in that process does it? hit somebody that, okay, something's wrong here. Because obviously, if, if you got a busy polling place, it's probably organized chaos on its best day. You've got volunteers, you got people in line, you've got the workers, you've got the supervisors trying to watch it all. When does the process of something might not be right here actually start? Is it at the end of the day when you're doing the checks for the day is it later in the process when would they know if something was not working like a machine was malfunctioning or something wasn't getting counted right or just the normal not even a conspiracy just the normal hey something went wrong because it's the day ending and why
0: if you're waiting to the end of the day to find that out you're sleeping on the job
1: so they're doing it in real time
0: i do i do batch reads literally every two hours at a precinct and that is inviolable i don't care how busy we are because if something's wrong, if somebody accidentally got issued two ballots, if a provisional ballot, which needs to be manu- ad, uh, manually adjudicated, and if that goes through the scanner, that'll screw up our count, I need to know about that. That happened during early voting in 2020, and I'm still mad about that. And so I have to be, you have to run a really tight ship when you're running a polling place. You know, you, I mean, you really do need your head on a swivel. You can't let things to chance, and you can't wait till the end of the night. If something starts acting weird, if a voter tells me that or a po- poll watcher tells me that, you best believe I'm on the horn with the election office going, hey, something's weird, can you please send somebody to check this out? You know, it's like things do not have to snowball and become massive catastrophes, but you have to catch them early.
1: How often are they getting caught early? So, Because let's let's say you're probably one of the best poll workers, there's probably some really bad poll workers, and everybody's kind of the medium in between. Uh, How often is somebody checking on these things or or is an outside official going, okay, something didn't go right here so that it doesn't snowball in an average polling place?
0: Well, sometimes you. one of the things, um, this is another small cybersecurity risk, but I think it's an acceptable one, is that a lot of election technology talks to headquarters. And sometimes they know if we have a disconnected cord or if something's, if the count's not right before we do, which is helpful. And one of the things about poll watchers, it's like, yes, I know I complain about them, but they'll notice if something's not right. And if they're correct about it, they've basically just saved me hours of ripping my hair out. So, I mean, although poll watchers can be kind of, you know, they're on, you know, it's like, if you're going to ride my butt, at least pull my hair. But on the other hand, they can be very helpful when it comes to noticing if something's not going according to how it should normally be going.
1: So you're talking about poll workers and audits. We've seen this again now in Arizona over the last few weeks. They're talking about trying to do it in Georgia. They just went to case. What they're calling these audits, um, that these outside peoples are coming in, they're getting court orders to observe and look at the ballots again. In Arizona, there's already been the audits. So they're calling this an audit. People can get confused. I know I got confused until I really dug into it. It's like, why, why are we having three, four, five audits? And now why are we having an outside audit?
0: I think that there is a difference between an audit and a fishing expedition. And the situation in Arizona is looking increasingly like a fishing expedition, particularly because of something that a local reporter caught that the auditors themselves did not catch. Because I'm on a post-election auditing team, I'm pretty well versed with how these things go they were the the auditing team for this one was bringing in black and blue pens you don't ever bring a black or blue pen into an audit you could alter a ballot the only pens you use are red because the scanner won't pick those up and there was not a red pen to be seen and i was genuinely surprised that alleged election auditors didn't know that that made, gave me extreme cause for concern the other thing that was really unusual is that these auditors were saying that they were accessing the server, but yet they couldn't get the source code to the equipment. I don't think I know a single security researcher who was given access to the source code from accessing a server, at least not with permission. And I really don't think the vendors of the election equipment would have done that anyway. I mean, there have been security researchers who are actual security researchers, like their stuff they present at DEFCON They've been threatened with arrest for trying to ask for source code. And so the fact that the auditors just assumed they'd have access to it is kind of like, okay, you don't spend much time with election security researchers, do you?
1: So, it, it, I mean, I don't want to make fun of people, but when your company's called cyber ninjas and you've never done this before and from following you and other people, I realize, you know, I just learn like everybody else, how complicated these election issues are. How complicated, and then you put something like cybersecurity, which is its own multi-layered complication thing, on top of a complicated thing like elections. Um, now they're talking about, and you can explain why this is. Now uh, Maricopa County is talking about, like, hey, every machine they touch, we're just going to have to get rid of it and replace it, and this is going to be a massive headache for us and a massive cost because once these, once they've dealt with this kind of material we can't use it anymore, we can't say it's good to go anymore, As is as, as that much of a security problem with these elections?
0: That one, I'm still learning about, so I can't say one thing, one thing one way or the other. I will say that I don't think it's fair for the taxpayers to have to bear that $6 million cost.
1: $6 million. Dollars.
0: Money. And that's a conservative estimate. Wow. The other thing is if they have the source code for the, that particular, for those particular machines, does that mean that every election department in the country who uses that vendor would have to get rid of their machines. I'm not sure that's good for business and I'm not sure that's even necessary. I mean, I think that there needs to be far more transparency between vendors and I think there needs to be more transparency, especially in the form of the audit that's going on right now. I think a lot of different interests have ulterior motives and we're still coming through Whose motives?
1: You know, which motives are which? Now, it, what they went to court for in Georgia? Uh, folks are saying the big difference there is that they're only going to get copies of the ballots and not the actual ballots. Why is it so much of a big deal to preserve the original ballots and only get them? I know you talked about the blue pen thing and what a disaster that's going to be for for forensic audits in Arizona, but. Why is that so much of a bigger deal, like you're only going to get copies, you're not going to get the original ballots to somebody like you that knows what the auditing kind of stuff does?
0: Well, I think that um, well, copying 2.1, oh my, that's, I can't even imagine what that's going to cost in paper, especially with a wood pulp shortage. But I think that if citizens wish, if, if electors in that county wish to inspect the ballots, I think that they should be able to but I do think that there does need to be some supervision when they're handling an actual record of the election because those ballots have to be preserved under federal law for at least 22 months. (laughs) However, once it's past the 22 month period, maybe it's not a bad idea to have drives with backups of those ballots for for people to inspect either in person or online because storage space is finite and election departments only have so much money and they can't be keeping ballots from like seven years ago for somebody to inspect. That's not realistic.
1: What do you think is realistic? Because like you said, you know, there, there is a, there's the element of the people have a right to know how their elections are being run. The government does have a responsibility to have a secure and safe election and protect people's privacy to a certain extent of their vote. So where, do, where do you see that line being? Is it in a after-action audit where they can kind of see the stuff? Is it a real-time audit? Where do you think the, the happy medium place is going to be for that?
0: I'd almost rather have people watching us as we're working. Because at least then, like, I mean, I had some poll watchers. I spent more time with them in 2020 than I spent with my kids in some, during some months. And one of the things that, for the most part, they were from the GOP or from the Trump campaign. And one of the things that I did notice is... When I explained what we were doing and why we were doing it, they were a lot happier and they didn't get on our case about everything. If you shroud everything in secrecy as it's going on and then have transparency later, you kind of blew your first impression. So I think that there needs to be, I think there does, there do I think observers certainly have their place as long as they don't like get in the way of operations. But I think that the transparency in the process needs to start much earlier than it currently does.
1: Speaking of transparency and process, while all this election stuff was going on, Congress got itself busy and they passed H.R. Uh, 1 for the People Act. Now, um, I I haven't read all of it. I've read large chunks of it. PDF wise because I had to pick pizza but you being a glutton for punishment, you read all almost eight hundred pages of this thing. Uh, you oh, wrote about it in elections.
0: It's at eight hundred and sixty four pages now, Andrew.
1: Oh, excuse me. Eight hundred and sixty-four <laughs> pages. Thank you. It um, was at seven hundred and
0: ninety-six.
1: Good lord. Okay. So you actually read all of this thing. Uh, you wrote about it in elections daily and and the partisan politics part of it is is what it is. I don't we'll leave that for another day, but as, as the poll worker and the expert you are, one of the concerns you wrote about is there's just large chunks of this bill that are not practically applicable. Like you physically cannot go implement some of the things they're trying to talk about here.
0: we will give credit to um, to the Senate, especially Bashar and the Brennan Center, because one of the things that is they went to Congress and they said, we can't implement some of this in time. So- very well election officials they did way more realistic decisions. so that part i think they fixed but the, i think one of the things with s1 as it stands now the parts weren't the sections of the bill that were the most problematic the election administration parts of the bill were actually pretty good i mean really i don't have a with most of those. the biggest problems were the uh, the ones i regulate electioneering each especially when it um relates to advertising and a lot of the campaign finance reforms. I mean, there are parts of S1, H.R. 1 slash S1 that I genuinely like. I think are really, I think they've, it's been a long time coming, but there are other parts where it's just like, please kill it with fire.
1: Yeah. And you mentioned that, uh, you actually thought the H.R. 4, uh, John Lewis Voting Rights Act was the better of the two pieces of legislation. And you seem to be a little bit, um, perturbed that they were trying to package it all together as a kind of an all or nothing thing when there was good points in here and then had some kind of ridiculous stuff that shouldn't have been on and tacked on to the end also
0: yes i think that'd be accurate i mean hr4 or the john lewis voting rights act is a beautifully written piece of legislation it's very elegant it's focused you can actually do something about what it's asking for and it's not going to cost all that much and it's not a nebula. It's not you know. I mean, om- anything that's an omnibus. I always think about that one. That one um, conservative maxim: the solution to government is not more government.
1: All right. When you're talking about focusing elections, where do you see kind of the future? Because there's there's a big move now. All a lot of these state legislatures. Florida's working on legislation. Georgia's working on legislation. That they all of a sudden want to change some of the processes. What are your concerns about people maybe over-legislating some of the election in the name of trying to help? Like Florida, we, we talked about Florida, seems like they really got it together. Do they really need to be changing a whole lot? Or is there some tweaking on the edges that need to be done? Or are we going to try to chase the needle and make this thing perfect and make it a whole lot worse?
0: All right. I think what you're referring to is Bill SB 90, um, which does have its good points and bad points. On the good side, it actually codified into law a lot of the changes that we made for 2020 that were originally passed as kind of an emergency waiver type thing.
1: The COVID type stuff.
0: Mm-hmm. And the pro- being able to process vote by mail ballots as soon as logic and accuracy testing has, has finished. That gave us a leg up as far as getting our results on time. Now, the one thing about SB 90 that I'm, it really does make things more difficult for military voters who will now have to renew their vote by mail request every year. And when you're, you know, when you're on du- when you're on your tour duty, it's you've got a lot to worry about. Your getting your your um, Yo-Kava ballot really should not be one of them. So I think that that's an unnecessary burden on our military voters of which Florida has a lot of. Right. So that's the one thing I'm going I'm going to quibble with. And the other thing is the restrictions on drop boxes and requiring the staffing of them at all hours. One of the things that I learned over the 2020 election is I had to assign a poll worker just to do the ballot drop box and with all the requests of now you you have to check their ID and you have to make sure that they're all in the same household if they're dropping off a ballot for someone else. And it's like, are we going to start paying our poll workers more because you're adjusting their duties up or is it just going to be you know the same as it always has been?
1: And I I want to kind of bring this back down to those to the poll workers again, kind of your your happy home place, if you will. What it seems to me like we're going to need more and more poll workers, no matter how the legislation stuff goes. So tell folks, if you will, like if they want to get involved with these poll workers, they want to volunteer, they want to do something, even if it's just poll watching. How, where do they start trying to get into that? Because it can be intimidating to try to deal with something like a board of elections or we have an election office here in town. You actually got to physically go up to it. Um, where would people go to kind of get involved with somebody like you of, okay, I want to learn how this works. I want to actually participate in our, our democratic process here.
0: Okay. So for poll watchers, in a lot of places, you have to be a registered member of a political party or a campaign work staffer for a recognized candidate. So, your best, so if you want to be a poll watcher or an observer, your best bet is to contact your local political party and find out what you need to do to be able to do that. Now, for being a poll worker, um, one of the things I like about a lot of states with their Department of Motor Vehicles, if you're renewing your driver's license, you can actually check a box saying, yes, you're interested in becoming a poll worker.
1: Oh, really? And
0: most places, if you register to vote, you can check a box that says that as well, and they'll generally contact you, usually by, by mail. Um, there's a couple of organizations like the Poll Hero Project. The, uh, they mostly work with uh, people in between the ages of 16 and 22. So if you're, you know, if you've got younger listeners, that might be a good place to go to find out about being a poll worker there. Or um, organizations like When We All Vote or um, Spread the Vote U.S. or Vote Riders also have information on become a poll worker or helping voters get to polling places in a more informal manner.
1: You, Where do you kind of see this all balancing out when we go to do primaries this year? Of course, it's an off-year election. The midterms next year look like they're going to be uh, just a giant ball of partisan fun, as they always are. Uh, do you see this as being kind of a turning point where folks—I know we got the noise of Arizona and Georgia. Do you think folks will maybe turn a corner and start paying a little more attention to how these things work? Or do you think we're still climbing the hill of getting some recognition and some of the transparency you talked about that you think we need to have in elections so that those good faith people who do get it explained to them and they're good on it and they're happy with it? We have more and more folks like that, that it's not like they just see a scary box going under a table and they all freak out. Do you think we're getting closer to better or do you think we've still got a hill to climb on that?
0: Well, I think we have improved leaps and bounds, even from 2016 or 2018. I always joke that 2018 stripped me of the fear of death and God it was just 2018 was a madhouse 2020 was actually a piece of cake by comparison midterms for some reason are always going to be more contentious and weird and misinformation just abounds so i think that 2022 is going to be a barrel of monkeys i mean there's really i can't really put it much, put it much differently than that there are going to be fingers pointed there's going to be accusations there's going to be misinformation from everybody and I'm just going to be on Twitter trying to, you know, put a rest to the rumors as best I can. I mean, I'm only one ballot fairy. But there's plenty of election, local election officials and nonpartisan voting and election integrity organizations that put out information on Twitter as well.
1: So kind of in on a happy play. Why do you do this? Like, why do you read 860-page legislative things? Why do you spend hours and hours and hours in an empty polling place in a primary and nobody's coming what is it that excites you so much about elections that's
0: a really good question um i think some of it is just you know i feel like i'm needed and i like trying to make my country better yeah that's why i do it i just want to make america a better place
1: yeah i i I admire folks like you. Um, the The person that runs my polling place has been the same older lady for years and years and years now. I, it, she's just a treasure. Um, but I I get that, and I I kind of want think a lot of people if they would get a little bit involved, even if it's not in poll worker, if it's just something like that. I think a sense of ownership and being involved would probably be something that we're missing in a lot of this back and forth arguing we're doing. So. I greatly appreciate you doing the poll working and all the things you do, and more than anything else, I, I'm glad you explained it to people like me who don't know how all this works, but I'd really like to know because I probably should have already known to start with.
0: Well, I was a born election explainer, I guess. I mean, I was, I was a housewife for a really long time, and like elections were something that kind of got me out of a really dark period in my life, and it gave me a purpose, and I hope I can convey that purpose to other people.
1: Well, you're our favorite ballot ferry. I appreciate you very much. Thank you for your time today and for explaining this all to us. And we'll probably be talking to you again, hopefully soon, especially with the midterms coming up.
0: Well, I look forward to that. Thanks so much for having me.
1: Thank you, ma'am. Appreciate you. You know, elections are a lot like other things. We kind of take it for granted how these things work. We want to talk about the presidents and the senators and congressmen and even maybe our local officials and how much our vote counts but we kind of forget about the fact that there's this whole process and hundreds of thousands of people involved making sure that that actually happens you know in transportation they call it the last mile that's how like you get stuff from amazon or another delivery company from their place where they ship it to to your front door the last mile is always the hardest part well, in politics, the last mile really is the election process. How do you get those things from your head and your heart and your passion and your feelings and your principles, and you want to act on them by voting, how do you get those onto a page or a screen, get them tabulated, and then in a couple hours or the next day it shows up on a TV screen as an election result? Hopefully today, listening to Genia, you get an understanding of the people behind the process, how people like her, you could hear the passion in her voice. Really care about this stuff. And try to have a perspective that these people that do things like poll workers and election citizens, there may be some bad actors once in a while, but for the most part, they're just people like you trying to do their small part for our country. We need to show these people quite a bit of respect. you got to have a little bit of humility sometimes to these things, especially something like a poll worker where you may not understand everything they're dealing with that day. you got to understand, folks, what they're doing there really is holding up our country and our democratic republic and our representative democracy. And it's doing a lot more to save the country and maintain our society and all the things that we think is great about America than just about anything you're putting on social media. A little more humility, a little more knowledge, and a little more appreciation never hurt anybody. It just might make things a whole lot better for us. Really appreciate you taking the time to listen to her tell today. On our next episode, Attorney M. Carpenter is going to join us. She's a senior editor at Ordinary Times, along with being a practicing attorney. And she's had it about up to here with really bad legal takes online. She's going to talk about how Twitter and Facebook are telling you all kinds of bad information about what HIPAA is and isn't. The Nuremberg codes do not have anything to do with trying to get a Krispy Kreme donut just because you're vaccinated, yelling fire in a theater, and all kinds of other good legal takes that are probably wrong. And you need to learn different on. In the meantime, however you're listening to this podcast and whatever service you're streaming it off of, make sure to like and subscribe to it. And we'd sure appreciate it if you'd share it with others if you liked it. Make sure you support Genya. You'll find her on Twitter at election babe. You can find her writing in electionsdaily.com. Ordinary Times and also the Washington Post. We'll have all those links in the show notes for you. Make sure to follow and support her. Most importantly, wherever you and yours are, whether you're around the world or across the street, we so appreciate you listening. Thank you very much and looking forward to talking to you again. Y'all take care. All the music on HerTel is provided under a creative content license from Monstercat.com.